Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide to the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for Frontlines, tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, join me and Daniel Yang on Frontlines. The Frontline program seeks to encourage and equip pastors and planners to better understand and navigate the current and future trends in church ministry. Each episode invites thought leaders and advanced practitioners in ministry to inform and inspire pastors and planners as they continue what they do on the field. Hey, Exponential, this is Peyton Jones, and I am here on today's edition of Frontlines. Now, you'll notice I do not have my beautiful, lovely co-host, Daniel Yang, with me. I like to think of him as Daniel P. Yang because I like to make up middle initials. And since he's not here, he can't contradict it. But he's going to be taking a little bit of a sabbatical, and we're going to catch up over the next few weeks with a series of leaders who are going to help us build what we like to call the Church Planners Toolkit. And today, my guest is Sean Lovejoy. He is the founder and CEO of Courage to Lead, which is a coaching network, but also he's the author of multiple books, including Measures of Success. And he's got another one here called Be Mean About the Vision. But there's nothing really mean about Sean Lovejoy. I mean, I, I bumped elbows with him a few times. He's a pretty nice dude. So, Sean, welcome on to the show, brother. Hey, great to be with you, man. And depending upon who you ask, I have been mean. So I heard been. you have a hit list. You have like a I Hate Sean Lovejoy club. That Everybody you can't has say. It's like an anti-fan club. I have those too. And uh, sometimes, late at night, I like to think that somewhere – somehow somebody I'm making their life miserable. And that kind of appeals to the little bit of, uh, I don't know, antisocial uh, behavior in me that Jesus is still working out, but it's there. So, uh, well, Sean, man, listen, 2020 has been a, an absolutely crazy year. Before we get started, I want to ask you, what's the craziest thing that's happened to you in 2020. 2020 is like everybody's El Nino, right? Like you remember El Nino? Yeah. Everybody blamed, uh, you know, sorry, I was late. El Nino, you know, sorry, my dog bit you. El Nino. El Nino was the excuse. Now it's 2020 pandemic. We're using an excuse for everything. Um, What's the craziest thing that's happened to Sean Lovejoy in 2020? So I'll give you crazy good news. A lot of people probably giving you crazy bad news. Crazy good news. I took my family to Disney World last week and no one was there. Dude. I went there too a month ago and it was epic. Yes. Star we had Wars a blast. Land. We had a blast. Oh, it was safe because no one was there. <laughs> I say no one. I mean, we didn't, we didn't rate, wait in line much longer than 20 or 30 minutes any ride. And um, so we had a blast. But who, who would imagine you'd go to Disney World and it would look like a ghost town? Crazy. It was amazing, wasn't it? It Crazy. was great. Best kept secret out there is Disney World. Now you didn't have to social distance in lines. You did have to mask yeah. up, yeah. and they had they had like the 
the Disney police, you know, that they did mask, man. mask police. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mask it was crazy. What's there's, I think there's something churches can learn there, by the way. I mean, the, the churches that are doing the best upon reentry right now are the ones who are being the most militant about masks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's something easy, right? I mean, that's, that's the, uh, the easy grab, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's low, low hanging fruit there. If you can just get people to wear a mask, you're doing all right. You know, if you can keep them six foot apart, you're doing all right. Well, cool, man. Uh, craziest thing to happen to me in 2020. I'll say the same. I got to go to Star Wars land in the middle of a pandemic. That was pretty epic. So, hey, now that we got that in common, let's talk about leadership because I am a cruddy leader and you're an excellent leader. And uh, I say that jokingly. I actually don't think of myself as a great leader. So when I hear that someone comes along and they coach leaders, I'm always down for that. I always think that's really good. But looking forward to 2021, churches are, are the, you know, they felt like they've been kind of held down during 2020 and they're on the upswing and they want to, they want to gain their momentum back if that's possible. So what do you think it's going to take for churches to regain momentum in 2021? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think that, you know, we, we talk at Curse to Lee when we coach pastors about not presuming on growth, but getting prepared for growth. And I think, 2020 has given a great opportunity to take a backward step, look at what we're doing, how we're doing, why we're doing it, getting better at what we do. And I actually think probably come next fall, it's going to be next fall, but I think next fall you're going to see explosive numerical growth in many churches who have utilized the last 12 to 18 months to get better, to get better. And if you get better, uh, eventually, you know, I don't care if you're tra- attractional or missional, you may not be able to control it all. You know, people are going to be attracted to what you're doing and people are going to be telling their friends and you're going to have to multiply. Um, and it's a good thing when you have to multiply and continue to multiply. So right now is a great time for, op- for, for leaders and pastors and churches to be preparing to get it, be getting better. And if you get mm. better, you know, eventually people will demand that you multiply or get bigger. Right. Yeah. So in a sense, I mean, you know, we're in a political season, not to rip any any wounds open or, or get anyone super excited, but it's time to build back better. That's what you're saying. <laughs> no politics aside here. Yeah. That's Regardless what you're of is, politics and ban- pandemics, you know, it's not all bad news. I mean, Ed Stetzer is the first one I heard say, he spoke at my church 15 years ago. I heard him say that church growth and economic prosperity have always been anti-cyclical. Yeah. In other words, Every time the economy has prospered, church attendance has declined. Go back to the nation of Israel. <laughs> Every time things were good, they turned their back on God. When it was tough, that's so they turned true. To God. So that's I so think true, man. On the backside of this pandemic, you're going to have millions of people looking for hope, looking for answers, trying to put their marriage back together, trying to keep their teenage daughter from cutting themselves, and they're you know they're going to be looking to the church yeah. in masses. So right now is when we get ready for that. And you know, that's one, of the, that's one of the key things about Exponential is um, our metric is not bigger churches. And we've been kind of banging this gong for years now saying, look, being big is not success. And you've got Measuring Success uh, on, on your shelf there, which is a fantastic book, by the way, everybody, if you get a chance to read it. But here's the thing is um, for Exponential, the measure of success is multiplication. You mentioned time to multiply. What, what should leaders be multiplying right now? 
Well, first of all, I mean, I tell every, I mean, I got to hand my church off when I was 45. You know, I just beat my church to the punch. You know, I was able to recognize, you know, I was a good pastor. I was a really good coach and I was able to leave on my own terms. <laughs> and I tell pastors, you're going to leave your church. You are an interim pastor. Hmm. You're either going to leave when everybody wants you to leave or nobody wants you to leave. Hmm. I would like for you to leave when nobody wants you to leave. And obviously I'd love for the church to outlive you. It is different in it. So first and foremost, you know, William Vanderblum says succession is the number one crisis facing the church. Warren Bird, the same. So we got to reproduce ourselves, you know, which means we can't just be running around the country to conferences and we can't move off and leave our team and not develop our team, be close to them and reproduce ourselves and other people. So it requires a relationship. You, you do a Bible study in the Gospels of all the times. Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds to be with the few. Yeah. But I see a lot of pastors do exactly the opposite. Right. They'll stiff arm a few leaders to be on social media or speak at a conference or do this or do that or write books. And like, no, no, no. The, the, real, the real value is re- like reproducing yourself and other people. Mm. That's good. So what are the what are the reasons? Because you know we talk about the growth that's really slowed down during the pandemic, and you know it's a false metric because what people are seeing is that n- numerical growth wasn't wasn't perhaps discipled believers, and so they just take off, right? It, it's not it's an illusion of success. It's not the real deal. So everybody right now, obviously, is going to be focused on growing again. Let's get the numbers back up. Um, What would be maybe some other things that churches are struggling with, but they don't realize? Yeah, I mean, obviously, a a pastor's number one goal is to always make sure it doesn't become about the numbers. Um, Biggest lie from hell I ever believed as a pastor is I'll be happy when we get to here. Mm. <laughs> and and you weren't right. Then you had to get to the next. I led a church to be a mega church. You know, it's it's more personalities to manage, just more problems to solve. Everything becomes more complex. You know, so it doesn't get easier as the church grows larger. It gets it gets more difficult. You multiply. Be careful what you ask for. It's a lot to be responsible for. Right. So one, keep the, keep the focus on life change and on stories. Most people are not motivated by numbers like we are. They're motivated by life change and stories. And hmm. Now's a great time to move those needles back to where they need to be on the individual life change and celebrating life change and stories. But then also just getting, you know, I, I talk about guys, don't, don't try to determine a size for your church, frankly. Just let God figure all that out. You just get prepared to multiply. One thing, mm-hmm. one thing's for sure, God's not going to send us more than we can handle. That's so there's all, these, there's all these process-oriented goals we can set into place. So if, I mean, if we'd love to see us, you know, reach 40 or 50 or 100 new people next year, how many small group <laughs> leaders or missional community leaders do we need trained and deployed? That's, you know, we've got work to that's do. huge and we can celebrate that we can celebrate yeah. that and i really do think most pastors are praying god might grow their church but i think jesus is waiting on us to kind of get our act together to produce it's so ourselves. funny you say that because when when i you know everything you said like i'm a cereal planter i'll plant and move on plant and move on so when when i was in one particular church plant we were just exploding with evangelism um 
it's just very natural. Uh, it was kind of this just thing that was happening. And then it stopped almost overnight. It stopped. And I remember at that time being troubled, like what in the heck is going on? And the more I leaned into prayer, the more I was really seeking the Lord. I felt exactly that same thing where the Lord was saying, you're not equipped to handle all these. I'm not giving you anymore because you're not equipped. Like, and, and we had to really double down then on discipleship. And so we started learning like a rhythm of evangelism and discipleship, evangelism and discipleship. But meanwhile, like you said, we were needing to get those people in place. I like how you said, you know, if you want to reach 40, 50, how many leaders do you have ready to, to inherit that? Because that, I, I don't think people think that far ahead. To me, it's like the widow and Elisha and the jars of oil. You know, the miracle stopped mm. when the number of prepared jar, jars she had ready. You know, interesting. Wow. And so, so we, we we don't we don't have enough leaders. We don't have mm. enough core. We don't have enough you know mature disciples to um, you know really lead people. Um, I don't have many regrets about my time as a pastor, but one of them is I, I just wanted to reach not, nothing but lost people. Mm. I, wanted, I wanted to reach nothing but pagans. <laughs> But pagans don't give, they don't tithe, they don't serve, <laughs> they, they, they don't know anything about anything. And, you know, so, so it's important to reach and, re, you know, retain people that are mature in their faith, new believers, as well as non-Christians. So we have a perfect body and we've got people that are mature enough to disciple others. And these can be real, you know, goals that we set as a church who we want to reach, how we want to reach, who we're going to disciple, how many we're going to deploy, how many are going to be, we think are going to be needed in the future. We don't set that. God determines that. But we, need to, we want to be prepared for whatever God wants to do. Interesting. So you made a statement publicly that most churches stop growing because they choose to. What did you mean by that? They choose not to have the conversations they need to have. Which are, what, cho- are the conver- what are the conversations you know, they need to be having? The average pastor in a traditional church setting would say, we love lost people. Lost people matter to God. We're about lost people. Then they get an elders meeting, and really the conversations center around how not offending these three patriarch families in the church. <laughs> There's a gap between what we say we value yeah. and how we behave. We go to yes. kill, kill a program we know is not discipling people. We tend to think of the pushback from insiders versus the value we're going to provide to outsiders. Right. You know, all of that. So there's a value. So we choose not to have the conversations we need to have, and we choose not to make the decisions that we need to make. And I see a lot of pastors get paralyzed in their decision-making process. Mm. And um, we help a lot of pastors deal with um, performance issues, character issues among staff people, among core leaders. And I've never had a leader, Peyton, say to me, I had that conversation too soon. Mm. Wow. <laughs> but if, I had, if I had a nickel <laughs> for every pastor had said to me, I put off that conversation. I was afraid, you know, and I shrunk back and it cost us a lot more because I wasn't proactive and courageous. Mm. I named our organization Courage to Lead for that reason because it takes Ooh, courage to wow. lead. It does. It does. You know, it's funny. I remember when I planted a church, I went back to it. And uh, this woman, I was just speaking there that day. And somehow, I think as I had a mic on or something, she perceived I was a leader. I've never seen this lady. I've been gone for a number of months. 
but a cross-dressing prostitute was using the ladies' room. This is back before the Target, you know, blew up in the public eye. And so we, we you know, it wasn't like, it was just refuge Long Beach. That's what we did. And uh, this lady came up to me and said, there's a, a, a man in the women's restroom. What do you want me to do? And it was during the, the, the worship and everything. So I just said, wait, wait for him to come out. <laughs> you know, we're not going to make a big deal about it. Just don't go in there until he comes out. And it uh, turns out he was changing out of his prostitute clothes into clothes that would be suitable for church. Wow. And, uh, and afterwards, I got the team around because she got real mad at my response, like, because I didn't want a pound of flesh. And at the end, it became a teaching uh, uh, lesson for the team that I had left behind, like, hey, guys, sometimes you got to make a choice. I knew right then we're losing that lady. But I had a choice. Are we going to lose the uh, cross-dressing prostitute who probably has no other churches that, you know, he could go to where he'd hear the gospel? Or are we going to lose this lady that, you know, apparently is, you know, she, she got a lot of churches with people just like her. So we made it. We made a choice. And I like that courage you bring out that courage to lead because my team was like disheartened. Like they were bummed that that had happened. And it was kind of like, Hey guys, hold on a sec, you know? But um, as you look at like people, it keeps coming back to this whole, you know, hoarding after numbers, right? Um, it, this I've got to have numbers at all costs. You know uh, I like that. You're saying it takes courage to say we can lose these people. Um, yeah. I call and, it growth by strategic regression. Nice growth by strategic regression. And it does, it's like a pruning, right? You bear more fruit every time you let those people go, you know, um, that's, that's fantastic. Well, Hey, what do you think churches need to focus on in 2021 besides getting rid of the dead weight? (laughs) Well, one is I think coming up with a key dashboard, you know, that's going to allow us to, you know, truly monitor success. You know, I've had, I, I'm, I, I consider myself a serial entrepreneur, spiritual entrepreneur. You know, I was a real estate developer, turned church planter, turned mega church pastor, turned founder and CEO, coach, all of that. So um, in the marketplace world, man, they've got a dashboard in front of them all the time. It's a KPI. You need to know what success is. So you, got, you do need to be able to measure your success. You know, Can you define leaders, KPI? Like, people, people want to know you're winning. Key performance yeah. indicators, KPIs. Okay. Key performance indicators. So, so what are our K- KPIs? What are our key performance indicators? What does that look like, you know, for us? I was visiting with David Sean a few years back out at Saddleback, chief of staff out there, and he was showing me their dashboard on the wall. It's on the wall all the time. But they don't just measure attendance. Attendance is actually nowhere on the wall. It was they're all all of their bases. How many people are crossing each of their four bases? You remember Rick Warren's bases? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They still today measure people as they're crossing those bases. You know, how many new leaders have we qualified for ministry? How many new small group leaders have we trained? How many people have gone on mission? You know, this year. And so that the the, the transferable principle is they've got they've got a dashboard. You know, and I don't think any of us get it a thousand percent right. But but we but we need a dashboard and we need to be looking at it. We need to hold ourselves accountable to it. I don't agree with pastors who say we're just supposed to be supposed to be faithful. We don't have to be fruitful. I disagree because I think a a healthy church should be people seeing people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
and seeing them go forward in believers' baptism and participating in biblical community and moving from a consumer to a courageous server, you know, and all of that. And if we're not doing that, we've got to hold ourselves accountable to it. We've got to hold it. God does hold us accountable for producing fruit. We can't produce it without him, but we are to produce fruit. Fruitfulness does matter. So whatever it looks like, however we measure fruit, we need something to be looking at to hold ourselves accountable to. That's good, man. And I got a train that's getting ready to come right by here. Bad timing. But uh, I suppose this year, 2020, has been all about bad timing, doesn't it? it haunts we won't right hear it as much as you window. think. <laughs> but if you're looking at, um, you know, the uh, leadership, you know, which is kind of your passion and the health of a church, like, you know, so far we've knocked on the head that maybe health isn't numbers, right? We've, we've toyed with that. Health is more multiplication, leadership development, um, arriving at those four bases or whatever your your dashboard is, um, can you define, like, for example, what, what would you, if you were talking to a, a planter or a leader, what would you, how would you help them develop a dashboard? What, what kind of things might be on that? Yeah. So we talk about, we talk about culture, team, and systems. We call those the gears of healthy growth. So healthy culture, where, where does culture, where is, cult, how does culture become unhealthy? There's a gap between our vision, our values, and how we're really behaving. So what, what, where, where is the gap? Where is the deficiency in what mm. we say we believe, what we say we value, what we say is important to us, and how we really behave, you know, on a, on a daily basis? And we can, we can make specific goals around closing you know, that gap. And then team, Do we, a staff doesn't make a team, but it can become one. You know, the more you multiply, the harder it is to keep everybody on the same page. And the opposite of conflict is not peace, it's artificial harmony. So do, do we have the right leaders in place? Mm. You know, um, John Maxwell said years ago, the problem with too many churches, is we've got ushers that can't ush and Susie's that can't sing and nobody will tell them. Mm. you know so what are the what are the what are the specific is our team healthy how do we need to make it healthy how could it be healthier what does that look like what is our communication like character are there specific people i need to talk to do we have toxic people on our team do we have underperformers on our team people that aren't doing what they say they will do and um, some people work too hard some people these days ministry don't work hard enough to be honest with you you know, and um, how do how do we hold them accountable to doing what they say they're going to do? And that all that makes a healthy team. Um, and then so how, do we have the right systems in place? Mm, um, good. Do, 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 do we have the right? Is everything done on paper? You know, or does everything go in a, to hell in a handbasket when the pastor goes on vacation? That's a problem. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's a personality dependent organization. Yeah. Um, at that point. So. Have we created clear processes and, and people in place so that I can be gone and this thing is bigger than me, you know, and it outlived right. me? So right. the, oh, we, can, we can set clear goals in each of those areas to become a healthier ministry. And then I think God says, okay, now Peyton and those guys are ready. 
Mm. Now they can handle some more lost people. <laughs> it won't right. crush them. But if we're overwhelmed and overextended and overcommitted now, you know, and our staff is stressed out, how, how can we handle more people than what we're handling now? Right. So it, it is about positioning and posturing and preparing for whatever God wants to do out in the future. It's good. What what role do you think that um, 2020, the pandemic, COVID-19, the lockdowns, um, churches not being able to meet, what role do you think spirituality might play into this? In other words, let me rephrase the question. A lot of leaders right now are, are they're, they're feeling this um, need to double down in prayer to lean into Christ a bit more, to depend on the Spirit. Because like you said, when things are going well, nobody needs God. But all of a sudden, leaders now, they're flat on their backs, right? Yeah. You, you said ushers who can't ush. Right now, you've got leaders that don't feel they can really lead. Right. Um, what What's the role of maybe getting their house in order or even, you mentioned like, this what we say we believe and what the reality is have you seen kind of almost like a personal spiritual reformation taking place amongst leaders has there been a return back to spiritual core principles yeah it has definitely humbled the largest of churches which i think is a good thing <laughs> mm. because when you have momentum you're not as good as you think you are <laughs> yeah um and when you don't have momentum you're better than you think you are Oh, interesting. And I don't think you'll ever be more feel more successful when than when when you're successful spiritually. Mm. So I think a lot of pastors right now, I mean, our prayer lives have been strengthened this year. Mm. You know, we've had to seek God more because we did not know what to do. <laughs> Only yeah. leaders who've known what to do is those who were leading in 1918, and those are not abundant. Right. So we've had to pray we've had to seek counsel we've had to get coaching we've had to see you know get help we've had to drop the pose and drop the pride humble ourselves raise our hands get on our knees you know all all of that um i tweeted this morning it's so funny you're saying what you're saying because i read this morning romans 15 13 may the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And I just wrote down, like, out of my own time with the Lord this morning, the God of hope is what fills me with joy and peace. Amen. Amen. Not economic prosperity, not political prosperity, right. not, not, not a building a big church. It is the God of hope that fills me with hope and gives me hope and, and, and fills me with joy and peace. So I think right now is a great opportunity to come back to that. And so what, funny. what do I want to gratify me, you know, building my kingdom or dying to my kingdom and letting his kingdom reign through me. That is the path to joy yeah. and peace. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that, that's, that's powerful. I think, I think that one of the, the things that, that's really stood out to me is the absence of hearing from our leaders to double down spiritually or, you know, we haven't heard that. I think leaders have been slow to, to maybe, maybe there's been a lot of distraction. Maybe there's been a lot of, um, you know, uh, 
focusing on the wrong things, which I think, like you mentioned coaching, um, I think that always helps. You, uh, you've mentioned church health. I mean, uh, sorry, uh, you've mentioned health of the church and you've mentioned leadership. How do those two tie in together? Well, like I tell pastors all the time in our coaching, like let's talk about systems for a moment. You know, the most important system in the church, if you're the, if you're the senior leader, is your calendar how you spend your time. You know, for example, I've never had a pastor say to me, man, we really started reaching a lot of people when I started doing more counseling. But yet pastors somehow get all down in the weeds of that. You know, we know we understand the importance of preaching and teaching God's word. But so many pastors tell me, man, my my, my (laughs) preaching time just gets crowded out (laughs) my preparation time and they just wing it, you know, so getting on top of our priorities, and getting it on our calendar, getting the most important things, the big rocks on there and being disciplined in that. And then, of course, you know, the reason why there's a gap between our values and how we really behave sometimes is because the leader's not living it out. Mm. Yeah. You know, there, I, I'm, I'm not being held accountable to practice what we say we preach. And we've seen even lately some infamous or famous pastors from some large churches, famous churches, you know, who was above accountability to a certain degree and not being called on the carpet. And it always costs a church, you know, in the long run. So I want to make myself accountable to close the gap between what I say I value and how Mm. I behave, you know, and then of course, to, it's easy for me to point fingers at my team at what they need to be, but am I? It, my, the best book I've read this year is called "Is Always the Manager." <laughs> it's always the manager. It's always the leader. So I, I mean, I've got to become a better leader. If they're not doing yeah. what they're supposed to do, well, I, I've got to be. I've got to be a better teammate. Yeah. To have a healthy team. So what is it like for me to do team better? Oftentimes, the senior leader wants everybody to be a good team. <laughs> Just don't ask us to like be, you know, one of the guys, be one of the team. Right. You know, instead of like, I've got to posture myself to live this way. Right. In in ethos with my team. Right. No, that's really good. That's really good. Um, your, uh, as you talk about, you know, leaders that are leading it out, that's come up a few times with you. And I'm just... I'm kind of going off the uh, off the reservation here, but um, Sean, I'd be interested to know who might be a few leaders who um, really impacted you, and were the kind of leaders that you thought, you know, because it, when it, whenever whenever somebody's passionate about leadership, there's a story underneath there. There's either a leader that inspired them and changed their life, or there was a deficiency that God gave them a gift to overcome. And they thought, man, I don't want people to struggle like me. So I don't know if it's one of those or both of those, but I, I'm, I'm really curious to hear who, who were some leaders who either inspired you or what your story was that brought you to this point. Well, we are the product of our relationships, you know, and a lot of pastors we run into, they're like big fish in little ponds, you know, and now, Nowadays, you get up to 500 people and you're launching your own conference and coaching network, you know, and, <laughs> but, but you stop learning from leaders who are further ahead than you. 
And I just, right. I, I planted my church at 28. I tell church planters all the time, don't start a church when you're 28. You're stupid. You remember that, Peyton? Yeah. How oh, stupid yeah. we were, you know, oh, yeah. the first oh, time yeah. around. Yeah, and, um, for sure. Still. I was, but I recognized, I recognized the need for coaching and walked up to a guy named Dan Ryland in 1999. I was 28 years old. Had just moved to Atlanta to start a church. Of course, he was John Maxwell's executive pastor, had just moved to Atlanta to start enjoy leadership now he's the executive pastor of 12 stone church and i said to him man 28 years old i feel like i have the spiritual gift of leadership but i don't know anything i'm stupid mm. i've never been a senior leader before i'd love to buy you a cup of coffee and that ensued a 20-year relationship you know wow. we're scheduled to do lunch this wednesday and i did the same thing that year to a man named larry osborne uh in your oh, back yeah. in, in your neighborhood yeah he's right um, here Called him up out of the blue, told him we got 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 one of him on got him or one of his Chris Mavity, one of those guys on the phone back then, and you know those guys sat down with my my four people, my core group, and spent a half day with us. Wow. You know they were running five thousand people back then, and I thought, man, I never want to be too big. Yeah, to love the the new leader and serve and coach the new leader, and when we started courage to lead. I knew I couldn't, you know, spend all my time with church planters, but we actually scaled our coaching so that we can coach, you know, a poor church planter as well as mega church pastors and mm. everybody in between, as well as marketplace leaders that we're coaching now. So those guys, you know, also just really taught me how to be a good coach. That's rad. You know, and then, so, then Sam Chan was one of those guys who just uh, said, hey, here's my, here's my cell phone yeah. and you need me, you call me. You know, so when I got ready to kind of structure our coaching, like we, we put a coach on retainer because life hits the fan and sometimes mm. you can't wait a month or until uh, a coaching call, you know, right. and group coaching calls can only have so much benefit, but to have a, a private <laughs> confidential call with someone, you know, it's not going to go past them to talk them yeah. through stuff going on in your life or in your church. They taught me off the ledge many, many times, mm. kept me from quitting on Mondays. And, and, you know, I left every single one of those conversations inspired, you know, by mm. people. And wow. I, I, I could go on and on all day long with mentors and coaches that I've sought out in my life. Uh, so good, man. That's so good. You know, a little shout out to um, Larry Osborne. He coaches once a month, a group of guys. Anyone can come if you're a ministry and just come to it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, he's been doing this thing for 13 years now and, uh, yeah, it's just right there. You can just walk into it. Um, the other thing is I remember I had to email him about something and I was talking to one of his assistants and they said, oh, just send him an email. I said, send him an email. He's just not going to respond to it. I sent him an email. He responded like five minutes later. Yeah. I'm like, who is this dude? He still so, will today. He still will today, by the way. I mean, it's crazy. So hats off to those guys. And, you know, if, if you're one of those guys that thinks you're too big for your britches and you're listening to this call today, humble yourself. You know, my dad yeah. is my best friend, my first coach, and he taught me that you're not better than anybody. That's great. You know, and I have kind of postured myself, you know, that way because I don't think I'm better than right. anybody. Uh, I've been yeah. – in the world's eyes, more successful than some, but there's a whole lot of people in the world's eyes more successful than me. So yeah. it's the great equalizer, and God really doesn't care. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, and it's how big our church is. 
That's it. That's it. And I, I think we're entering into a time in the world where, you know, like you said, those, you know, like what you wrote the book about measuring success, the wrong metrics aren't going to matter anyways. I think the last will be first and the first to be last, not just in eternity, but in the coming years. So, you know, uh, what, what do you think is the missing ingredient for churches that feel stuck today? Well, that's what we promised when we talk about today, actually, right? Um, <laughs> yes, but I, we had to get there, you see. And, yeah, and yeah, by yeah. the way, guys, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour. Um, we still have a lot of time with Sean left. So uh, one question has come in already, but we're, we're going we're gonna to let you answer this one and one more. And then we're going we're gonna to take your questions and answer them. So be sure to pop them in the chat and uh, we'll go ahead. And uh, Brooks Heyman. On uh, works for Exponential behind the scenes. He's like the man behind the curtain on the Wizard of the Oz. Uh, he uh, he taught me what bottom of the hour means. I didn't know what it meant. Meant meant you know. My time eleven thirty. The 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 big hand goes to the bottom of the clock, and we call that the bo- top of the hour is nine a.m. Bottom of the hour is nine thirty. So now that you all know, because none of us on our team knew that, and he had to set us straight. But anyways, what's that missing ingredient for stuck churches, Sean? You know, Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, one friend sharpens another. And think about that. How does, how does iron sharpen iron? Heat and friction. <laughs> That's what we need to grow. We, don't, we, we pray for God to make it easier for us. But the truth is, we need heat and friction applied to our lives to grow. So I, as the senior leader, like, I need that. I need to be held accountable. I want to make myself accountable to the team. Early on in the pandemic, I went in and apologized to our staff at Courage to Lead. We call it Courage to Lead HQ here in Birmingham, where our full-time staff is. And uh, I went in and apologized to them because for about the first six weeks, you know, we were all pivoting. It was crazy. We were fielding calls from pastors all over the country. What the heck do I do? And so I stopped working out. You know, I got, fell off the wagon there for about six weeks. And um, our number one value in our organization is health. Mm. We talk about coaching leaders healthier uh, first and foremost. And um, I, I, I got unhealthy physically in that first six weeks. I just went and apologized to my team. And I said, hey, I, I want to I invite you guys in a height way to hold me accountable. You know, but I need I need I need to be held accountable to living what I say I believe, but also doing what I say I'm going to do. I, I need that. It's one of the great values of coaching. Harvard Business Review says that 91% of strategic plans fail. Mm. 91% of strategic plans fail because we talk about what we're going to do and we have big aspirations. There's nobody there to kind of hold our hand and hold us accountable to execute what we talk about on the mountain. And, it, you know, Sunday comes every seven days. Tyranny of the urgent happens in the church. And we never really follow through and execute on our plan. We get vision schizophrenia, <laughs> something I talk about in Be Mean About the Vision. And we, we, we don't really just faithfully work the plan. And I feel like the churches that are going to be most c- successful going forward are going to be the ones who are uberly consistent. Um, the second best book I read this year is a book called Ruthless Consistency. Hmm. And he basically says in that book, like what you do is not as important as everything you do. You apply that to the church, like preaching the gospel is important. But frankly, there are a lot of churches who are preaching the gospel every Sunday that aren't reaching lost people. What's wrong? 
You know, well, it's everything they do around preaching that gospel. Yeah, yeah, that's true. negatively affecting them. You know, and yeah. so we need somebody to look in there and challenge our perspective, and look at what we're doing and how we're doing it, and kind of confront ourselves and our need to get better. Jim Collins says in Good to Great, confronted the brutal facts was the first step to becoming great. Hmm. True individually, but then it's true as a staff. Like my, right. my team needs to be held accountable. You and, know, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I just think there's great opportunity there to be courageous. Like we, we, we don't hold leaders accountable well in the church. We feel like we, we kind of avoid conflict because we're supposed to be nice like Jesus and we're afraid of rocking the boat and, yeah. you know, the other pastors are our friends. And so, you know, we just talk to so many pastors every month who are like, I've got this guy. <laughs> yeah. Or I've got this girl, you know, on the team and either they're acting out or they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And they're under, and my first question is always, well, have you told them? <laughs> and nine times out of 10, Peyton, they're just like, well, no. I'm like, well, go talk to them. You know, tell them what you expect and tell them you want permission to hold them <clears throat> accountable to it. It's those, it, that's what I mean by the missing ingredient in most of our relationships is accountability, and we need it. Yeah. And, of course, it can keep us from ultimate moral failure, church collapse, but also quiet, slow death. Right. Um, by not thinking of ourselves properly, assessing ourselves properly. That's good. And I, I want to ask you, because I know a lot of our listeners are probably thinking, man, I should confront. Confrontation's tricky. I don't know how. And I, I, I would imagine that the majority of leaders, you know, they, they don't teach you that in seminary, you know, uh, interpersonal confrontation or a healthy right. confrontation. They don't teach you that stuff. For Sean Lovejoy, what does healthy confrontation look like? Like, how do you do that? So we say, we teach this, that conflict's inevitable, you know, but drama is a choice. So we talk about like creating a drama-free culture. Mm. So a drama-free culture embraces and even minds for healthy conflict. Um, because the opposite of conflict is not peace. It's artificial harmony. A lot of mm. church leadership teams have artificial harmony. Hey, pastor, hey, brother, you know, love you. Bless God, you know, but then we'll go home and say something to our, we get frustrated with the leader in our church. We'll go home and tell our spouse about them. Right. We won't go talk to them. So right. one of the things we teach is, you know, Let's talk. We're going to talk to each other, not about each other. And we're going to right. hold each other accountable to that. If someone comes to you about me or vice versa, your first question is, have you, t have you spoken? Amen. Absolutely. You know? And then just setting some ground rules for how we're going to do this. I think yes. language matters. We talk about building a last 10% culture. Most cultures say 90% of what they're thinking and hold back the 10%. Right. We advocate and try to foster cultures and churches where we say our last 10%. Right. We're going to okay. get it all out there, um, which means we'll probably have more awkward moments, maybe more, maybe more conflict, but yeah. we'll actually understand each other better. We'll resolve issues and we'll, we'll be healthier going forward. What about when, cause I know, uh, you know, we're going to get into coaching a little bit, um, but Obviously, you've got to confront as a coach, but um, I, I think you probably then come up against people's um, 
hangups with confrontation. You know, people are insecure or maybe they were abused as kids. So confrontation to them causes a fight or flight perhaps, or there's all kinds of, maybe there's deep-seated feelings of inadequacy. How do you minister to people you lead when you're trying to confront them, knowing that these are all the landmines involved with confrontation? Well, first, I think it's just kind of understanding biblically that it's not, it's not, it, sh- it should not be sinful. It should not be um, looked down upon, you know, to have difficult conversations. Right. You know, it, it's okay. actually, it, it's actually integrity filled relationships. Cause if I, if I get frustrated with you, Peyton, and I go home and tell my spouse about it, if you think about it, like, and, and, I t- and I act like everything's okay with you. That's really the face of hypocrisy. Mm. <laughs> And lack of integrity. It's really a lack of integrity. When we get so, off here, I'm going to go tell my wife, that Sean Love guy, Lovejoy guy on my uh, show today. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, well, you've said it to me, so you can now. <laughs> Dang it. But, but if I, but so, so one is just recognizing like the value, the value of confrontation is it allows me to be a person of integrity. Mm. You know, I actually tell leaders, if you enjoy confrontation, like you probably need counseling for that. <laughs> <laughs> and when you have a difficult conversation with a church leader, I think you should always lose sleep. I mean, those, those conversations should never come easy for you, right. but they're necessary. And it's also looking on the other side of the relationship at what could become if we have that conversation. Right. A lot of times when my, my wife and I, we, we, had, we went to marriage counseling in year seven of our marriage. Okay. We weren't headed for divorce. We might've been headed for killing each other. I was a pastor and we just hit, we just hit a wall, man. And a licensed professional marriage counselor, you know, sat us down and began to talk to us about how to resolve conflict. And we just decided we we went out to eat after that. We went to Kentucky fried chicken because we're in the South Peyton. We went to Kentucky fried chicken, believe it or not afterwards. And this couple was sitting there, 80 year old couple was sitting there and they, they, for 30 minutes while we sat there and talked, this couple did not talk to each other. They just ate their food. And I said, you know what? They've just decided at some point to live and let live. Yeah. They have nothing to say to each other. And we would rather have intense fellowship. That's what we call it in my house than, than artificial harmony. So we're going to fight. We're going to fight fair, but my wife and I understand each other so much better Mm. 27 years later because we resolve conflict. We handle it. And unresolved conflict is like a, infected wound man it just gets all up in us and then my, when my wife opens up to me sometimes and t- lets me know about things that are frustrating her honestly most of the time i don't change i don't get any better but she feels better just having talked to me about it mm. um and vice versa so when we don't handle conflict it actually creates a wedge in the relationship over time. So right. I'm answering your question. Sometimes you have to look past the awkwardness, the difficulty of it and see the potential fruit of yeah. saying that last 10% and talking about our offenses and our hurts and our anger and frustrations with our team in our yeah. church, with our leadership. And we understand each other better on the backside. That's good. That's good. Well, we've got um, a question. How do you develop a healthy culture? And I've got another one for you that kind of ties in afterwards to that. But um, how do you develop a healthy culture? Yeah, well, I've kind of touched. I've kind of touched on it. You know, we try to always in our coaching put the cookies on the bottom shelf. That's kind of the way I'm wired. Um, 
first of all, it's like you got to be the culture you want to build. Mm. If we want to be a missional church, am I a missional pastor? Do I know any lost people? Yep. Hello? Or, or do I just hang around with Christians all the time? Right. You know, if, if I expect people to be holy, am I holy? Hmm. If I expect excellence, do I, do I exhibit excellence in my preparation for Sunday? That's good. You know, I've got, I've got to live the vow. I've got to be the culture I want to build. Hmm. And then secondly, identify those gaps between what we say. We're usually not as – the number one mistake leaders make is lack of clarity. We usually have not been as clear as we need to be, as we think we have. So the question is, how have I been unclear? If the culture is unhealthy, I may have not have been clear enough about it, or I haven't held us accountable to it. So I think two of the most credibility-building words a leader can say is walk into a room and say, hey, guys, I'm sorry. I owe you an apology. Maybe I haven't been this, or I haven't held you accountable to this. Mm-hmm. But um, I've confessed that to God. I'm confessing it to you. And starting today, we're going to start getting better. We're going to hold ourselves accountable to live and behave what we say we value around here. And here's what it looks like. And it's on paper, by the way. You know, it's on paper. It's not just in my head because a lot of times our expectations are in our heads, but we've never really like communicated. You know, a lot of times pastors will say, I'm frustrated with so-and-so on my team. And I'm like, well, where is that written down as an expectation of they're like, well, no, no, no. Everybody just kind of knows what I expect. No, they right. don't. You're not, you've not been as clear as you think you've been. So get clearer with it. And then you've got to stretch that accountability muscle right. to say, I want to be held accountable to live this way. And I need to start holding you accountable to live this way. And frankly, the ultimate accountability, the shoe's got to drop. Patrick Lencioni right. calls it managing them off the team. If they're toxic pieces, components of your culture, we have rarely worked with a team, Peyton. Most, most churches think they're one or two hires away. I think they're normally one or two fires away or asking a couple leaders to step down probably. Right. You know, or fall in line, you know, or we're going to have to, you know, but just be, the clearer we are, the more people tend to even self-select. Well, I really I think, like, I don't think this is for me. Yeah, no, no, no. I really like, um, I like that idea. I really like what you said there, but I, I particularly want to hone in on the idea of modeling. That is so true. Like you will never have your church reach lost if you're not personally doing that. You can't just tell them you go do what I want to. So I really like that. And I know coaching really like you, like you've continually said, it helps close that gap. It holds leaders accountable. Um, one of the, the, the questions that comes out of that, not just about a healthy culture, um, but somebody said, could Sean comment on health, how type A driven persons, so I think they're seeing like, you're, you're a guy that likes to keep moving, um, needs a Sabbath. What does Sabbath look like? And how is that different than a day off where you get done everything you didn't do during the week while being ministry driven? So they're asking really about kind of going back to that core value of health that you have. Um, how do they take a Sabbath and what's it look like for Sean Lovejoy? Well, I don't, I don't believe in balance. I also can't find anywhere in scripture, frankly, Peyton, this idea that it's God family ministry. I can't find that anywhere in scripture. I hear it thrown around all the time, but nobody's ever been able to show me any kind of scriptural evidence for that. I actually believe the Bible advocates more what I call life in rhythm, intensity followed by rest. We were created, we, we created the 40 hour work week, not God. He created us to work six days a week, sun up to sundown. They didn't have Netflix, so they went to bed. 
at, at dark. <laughs> they got up and did it the next day. That's 12 hours a day, six days a week. The original work week was 72 hours a week. So the problem is not a hectic work week, but the seventh day was so dedicated to God, they wouldn't even cook a meal. And everybody knows that. So, so on a daily basis, what's the transferable principle? I need to have a time I start and a time I stop. A time I start work and a time I stop work. And for me, one of my principles is I'm going to rob my sleep rather than rob my family. So if I need to get up at 3.30 or 4 o'clock a.m. for a season, spend, spend an hour with God, which I usually do in the mornings, my own personal growth and development, I can start working at 5 o'clock, bro. <laughs> I can work for 12 hours that day and still shut off at 5 o'clock. <clears throat> and I've lived this for the last 15 years since that seventh year of marriage counseling for me, I repented of workaholism. And bro, I shut down at a certain time every day. John Maxwell said years ago, you make the decision once and then you manage it daily. And I told our church yeah. leaders, I told our whole church from the platform, hey, I love you guys, but I'm not going to be away from home more than two nights a week. I had public accountability for that at that time. You know, and I don't open my laptop at night at my house. Like there are just ground rules and I've chosen to make myself accountable to them. How do you maintain your Sabbath? Make yourself accountable. Make yourself accountable. If you really want to be held accountable, ask your spouse to hold you accountable. Ask your team to hold you accountable. It was on our performance review when I was a pastor. It's on our review today with all of our coaches and all of our staff at Courage to Lead. Whether you're nurturing your vitality and maintaining your health by taking your day off and your vacation time. If not, you can really get in trouble for that. So um, those are just a few principles that I teach. And then, of course, in church work, there are natural seasons of life. You and I talked about this offline. Uh, the, we're to be fishers of men, but the fish aren't always schooling. <laughs> so certain types, so certain times of the year and certain seasons, you can be more MIA. And certain times of the year, your B team can, you can let your B team lead, which makes the church healthier in the longer run anyway. And then during a growth season, you're more you're more on and teaching out of the overflow and ready for when new people are coming into the church. That's so true, man. Sean, I, I love what you're saying. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned workaholism. That was my number one marriage struggle, the first year of my marriage. I remember calling our pastor into that situation. He goes, Peyton, doesn't sound like you want to be married. She's like, he schedules me in. Like I was, you know, if you look at Strength Finder, it's Achiever. Like I run multiple podcasts. I write books, blogs. I mean, I do all this stupid stuff that I probably don't need to be doing. But here, here's the end of it, right? As I've uh, you know, years ago, when I started having kids about 11 years ago, I said exactly the same. First off, I had to repent of the workaholism to save my marriage. Right. But then it was like, well, I have kids. I don't want to miss out on my kids. So literally everything I do, it's a non-negotiable eight hours. I get it done in eight hours. If it doesn't fit within eight hours, it, it doesn't get done. And, and I used to over the weekend work exactly what you're saying, but like, I don't, I love what you're saying about the 12 hour days. There are seasons. Well, I don't think, I don't think pastoring in most churches is a 40 hour a week job. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I don't yeah. think it is. I think it's more than that. So the question is, how are you going to get, how are you going to do it? You know what I'm saying? How are you, <laughs> you know, well, my job at exponential was an 80 hour a week job right. at one point. Right. When I first so started. it's being, it's being creative about, you know, how, 
you do it. Yeah. You know, uh, my friend Dan Rowland taught me this years ago. He said, if you're going to work late, just go ahead and decide one day of the week. Yeah. I'm going to work late. You know, he would do coaching and counseling till seven o'clock one night a week. You know, it was just a, but it was, it was a natural rhythm for them. And his, his kids knew what to expect. His yeah. spouse knew what to expect, you know? So it's, it's that discipline. It's that focus. It's that accountability. It's, 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 it's being intentional with your yeah. life. We, we talk about it courage to we coach our leaders to initiate, not react. So you need to initiate your ministry, not make your ministry a ministry of reaction. Because yeah. if you do, Man, you just run from one fire to one fire to one crisis to one crisis. You're really working in it, not on it. You're tactical. You're not strategic. You know, it depletes your energy. Um, so we, we, you got to steward that emotional energy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really funny because um, one of the comments came up about giving up sleep. And I'll tell you what, um, years ago, I went to a doctor said, so just, and he asked me how much, how much sleep do you get in a night? Um, cause I would get up super early and I hated sleep because I always want to accomplish things. And I was having all this body pain and they were thinking maybe fibromyalgia. It was lack of sleep, chronic lack of sleep. And the doctor just, he was great. It was in Britain. And he just said, you just need to sleep more. And so anyways, I, I fought that a bit, but then, um, he ended up, uh, really saying to me, Hey, um, you know, and I, I didn't hear you, uh, say lack of sleep or any, like, you know, you're sac- you're saying get up early. No, it's quite the contrary. You know, it's, it, the, the idea of living life in rhythm is be where your feet are. Yeah. You know, when you're at home, don't be guilty and feel like you need to be at work when you're at work. Right. Don't feel guilty Boom. that you feel like you need to be at home when you're supposed to be sleeping, be sleeping. And yeah. when it's time to get up, get your butt up and go yeah. work and work with intensity outwork everybody else yes. the, do everything that's you the do key the glory of god you know yeah. the reason why a lot of us stuff spills over into the weekend is we frankly are not as intentional not as focused yep. not as disciplined yep. during the working hours so yep. it is intensity and rest you know both are equally important and they've got to be built into our lives i, I found research peyton that stated that the, 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 what is it? The right side of our brain that's more concrete and the left side's more abstract. Um, the, the right side has a longer bandwidth than the left side. So, so the problem solving part of your brain will last longer than the creative, innovative part of your brain. Right. So when you work all the time, it is literally robbing you of the ability yep. to be innovative <laughs> and, and be creative and be strategic. And we honestly, by whether we're a morning person or not, when we get up in the morning after having slept, we have our best ideas. That's the reason why we have yeah. most of our best ideas in the shower in the morning. Yep. Because so, we just rested. Here, here's the deal. It's a non-negotiable for me for that same reason. Sleep does the same thing. Seven hours a night. There's a book. If you guys want to get, he's a neuroscientist that specializes in sleep. Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep. That will change and you will work better like Sean's saying here. But Sean, as we close out here, um, Courage to Lead has uh, 
a coaching available to leaders. So uh, if you're here, um, Sean is one of our sponsors um, for our fall roundtables, and he's on here. Uh, really, he he hasn't made this a commercial, which we're very grateful for, Sean. But let's just uh, let's just let me confront you. You're here because you're offering uh, coaching to um, to leaders and planners at Courage to Lead, and we want to, as part of our toolkit. Uh, let planners and leaders know that, hey, that's here. And you're a friend of Exponential. You're someone we deeply trust. You've tracked with us and traveled with us for a long time. Tell us a little bit more about Courage to Lead and how that can serve our listeners. Yeah, well, I, I think we're the only true, you know, coaching, you know, organization that's out there. You know, what some call coaching is really content delivery or it's training or it's, um, you know, it's um, consumption of content. But really, we put a personal coach that's a pastor in a church today that's been through our coaching and been qualified as a coach and with our process, and we help them assess their leadership and their health of their ministry. But then we hold their hands and hold them accountable. We put that coach on retainer. They're available 24-7. We always promise to get back the same day when stuff hits the fan, when you need to really, really process through deep stuff. We meet every month, and then we come in every six months, spend a half a day with the whole team. So it's a true coaching relationship, and most leaders are with us from like 12 to 24 months. We kind of ask for a good faith six-month commitment because we want to make a difference. We don't go in and do any one-day strategic planning or consults. We want to have a relationship with a pastor and his team and help them get better. Help them get better. Because if we get better, everyone and everything around us will get better. Oh, that's so, so good. Maxwell said everything rises and falls on leadership. And I just believe that. It's a spiritual yeah. gift. Most of us said yes to pastoring because we have that seed within us. It's just got to be fanned into flame. And that takes a lot of effort <laughs> and some sharpening. <laughs> you well, know, we, need, we need you to cause some friction in the lives of these leaders. And I want to thank you for coming on today, Sean. Thanks for being a guest on here. Thank you for being a sponsor as well. If you want to catch up with Sean, head on over to CourageToLead.com. That's CourageToLead.com. And check out what they have and sign up to uh, get some more information and uh, someone will reach out to you. So in the meantime, if you have heard about the uh, fall roundtables, lots of people are talking about this. They're, they're actually, uh, they've been going on and we have been collecting on the topic of diversity on 12 key topics. We have been speaking uh, with leaders all over the country, particularly leaders of color um, who have spoken into particularly in this nation, but it's gone worldwide, the hurts and the things that divide us. Well, our theme has been together and we have put the divided no more resource kit together. If you couldn't make it to a round table, we're still carrying on the Black Friday sale because it is Cyber Monday, but the divided no more resource kit um, is something that I personally had a hand. Uh, also, Brooks, the mystery man I, I, I mentioned earlier, but look at this lineup. We've got Leon's Crump, Daniel Strickland, Daniel Yang, Albert Tate, we have had a hundred plus speakers and leaders uh, giving us even book reviews. We have 30 interviews with authors on these topics, um, books you would know very, very well. 
and they've spoken to us. These are experts in diversity, and we want to encourage you. You can buy this for $19, and you can also uh, lead your own roundtable if you want, or lead a small group. We've, we've given you the ability to do a 12-week study or a four-week study. It's kind of like you choose your own adventure. So uh, be sure to check that out today. Um, we've already had tons of people flocking to buy this, but uh, take advantage. 99, we're giving you, uh, my math isn't so great, but 99 to 19, that's $80 off. So check that out. And uh, again, thanks for joining us. I'm Peyton Jones, my guest has been Sean Lovejoy from Courage to Lead. And this has been Frontlines. We will see you next week. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.